Father God, we come before your presence worshiping you and praising you and thanking you, Father, for the wonderful, awesome privilege that we have to be children of God, that we can actually sit on your lap and call you Abba, Father, that we are co-heirs with Christ, inheriting his glory. We are joined together to the Lord, and we are one spirit with him. And not only that, Father, but every one of us in this room who has been born again by your spirit, we are one spirit with Christ's body, the church. Thank you, Father, that our citizenship is not here on earth, where it can be so depressing because of the evil that we see waxing worse and worse every day, but that our true citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior. Thank you, Father, that if we be in Christ, we are new creatures, and old things are passed away. All things are become new. We have peace not only with you, but we can have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And, Lord, a special prayer request that we have this morning. We just lift up to you, Walter, and we pray, Lord, your blessing upon his surgery tomorrow. And We know that um, all things will be done for your glory and his good. We just put him in your hands and pray for wisdom of the surgeons, Lord. And now I ask that you go before us, hide me behind the words and the works of Jesus Christ so that he might, alone might be glorified. For we pray in his name, amen. <clears throat> Having looked at how heaven's dove fell, which was what we discussed with the Lord's baptism, and then how hell's devil failed, we discussed that two weeks ago when we looked at his temptation, we now come to consider how earth's disciples followed. After seeing to it that his son was publicly identified to Israel, which was what John the Baptist did in John 1.29 when he pointed his long finger when he saw Jesus approaching him for baptism and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John was publicly identifying God's Son to Israel, the nation. Now the Lord God began to see to it that Christ would be privately identified to individuals as the Lamb of God. And this was first done once again by none other than John the Baptist. The two men to whom John privately, first of all, identified Christ became the very first two of the Lord's original disciples. And they, in turn, this is what we're going to be looking at this morning, they, in turn, brought two more men to Christ, and they became the first four disciples. And then shortly thereafter, two more men were brought to follow Christ. And so we have a very simple outline for our lesson. We're going to be, the title for our lesson is The Savior's First Six. Two and two and two is six. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. Our outline consists very simply of two parts. We're going to look, first of all, at Christ's first followers who were, and I want you to try to memorize their order, very simple, Andrew and John, Simon Peter and James, then Philip and then Nathaniel. And then the second part of our outline, we'll only spend a minute there, is Christ's first forecast. So let's begin by looking at Andrew and John. So if you'd read with me, looking at John chapter 1, starting at verse 35, it says, And again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, heard John speak, and they followed who? Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? 
They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, come and see. That's an invitation by Jesus Christ. Come and see. And what did they do? They came and saw. That's the investigation. There was an invitation and an investigation. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We'll stop right there. From John's gospel, we find that when the Lord had returned from his wilderness experience, probably back to Bethabara, that's where he had been baptized by John the Baptist. So after he had gone into the wilderness and returned back to Bethabara, he was once again seen by the Baptist, who was with two of his disciples. The Baptist had disciples, men who followed him and learned from him sat at his feet and learned all he had to teach. He was a prophet of God. So uh, it says in verse 36 here that the Baptist stood. Perhaps when he saw the Lord again, you know, it had been some 40 days since he'd seen Jesus, and when he saw the Lord, perhaps he was already standing or, or maybe he stood up, but it says he stood and he looked upon him as he walked. Now it doesn't tell us that Jesus walked to him. It just said he looked at him as he walked. So perhaps Jesus was just walking by. And the Greek word which is used for looking there, John's looking upon Jesus, is a word which tells us it was a steadfast, penetrating, concentrated, focused, fixed look. In other words, what it's saying is John couldn't take his eyes off of Jesus. Now, his perceptive spirit, remember, John was born with the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. So his perceptive spirit may, this is just speculation, but may have enabled John to see some kind of Shekinah glory about the Lord's countenance after he had returned from his victory over Satan. Although his physical appearance, if you think about what the Lord must have looked like, after 40 days in that rugged, barren desert, you know, without a shower and um, just kind of nasty, just unkempt and everything. And he hadn't eaten, and so he was probably sort of skinny looking, even though the angels came and ministered to him after it was all over. But his physical appearance must have been rather shoddy. But his spiritual countenance, uh, accountants, his spiritual countenance must have been something different altogether. Perhaps he did have a glow around his face, somewhat like Moses had after he came down uh, spending 40 days on, with God at Mount Sinai. You know, if you're in the presence of God, when, when he came down, the people couldn't even look upon him because his face shone so much. And here's Satan. Uh, Jesus is returning after 40 days and 40 nights of continual battering and temptation by Satan, and he was the victor. So perhaps that was why John couldn't take his eyes from the Lord's face. Well, as he continued to stare, he once more fulfilled his divinely appointed role by proclaiming to two of his disciples who were with him at that time, Behold the Lamb of God. The Baptist's obedience to faithfully introduce Jesus Christ publicly to Israel, which is what he did on that first day, when Jesus approached him for baptism and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Actually, it was the second day, wasn't it? Yeah, excuse me. The second day after he was baptized, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
That was his public announcement of who Christ is to the nation of Israel. And now here he is obediently faithful to um, privately introduce Christ to individuals. And he bore immediate fruit in doing this because the two disciples heard him and they followed Jesus. Isn't that just perfect? Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly how it's supposed to be. They heard John, but they followed Jesus. That's how it's supposed to be. The one objective and the one motive of every single one of us, if we're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, should be to speak with the intention and and, uh, with the hopeful consequence that as a result of our words, people won't follow us, but they will follow Jesus. We're just the voice. He is the word. He's the word of God. A voice without words is meaningless. If I stood up here and just went, ah, e, oh, <laughs> wouldn't have much meaning. I think you'd all pack up and go home very, <laughs> very shortly. <laughs> but we're just a voice. The meaning comes in the words, and Jesus Christ is the word. Now, losing two of his disciples did not bother John one single bit. It didn't make him jealous in the least. He understood and he appreciated The fact that he was merely a voice for God, a voice crying in the wilderness. While Christ is the very word of God, John understood that. John knew that his function was to be the ambassador of the king. He was not the king himself. He was to decrease and move aside so that the Lord Jesus Christ could increase. So with great spiritual maturity, John did not begrudge the fact that two of his disciples transferred their allegiance to Jesus. In fact, you know, John wanted them to follow Jesus. That's why he pointed him out. John began to fade from the scene, actually, from this point on. And uh, the ministry of Christ will begin to grow. And as far as we know from the gospel accounts, this was the last time that John saw Jesus. And so maybe that also had something to do with his penetrating look. You know, he wouldn't know that at the time, but maybe the spirit within him knew that this would be the last time he'd actually set his eyes on Jesus. As far as we know, they never did meet again on earth. We know they fellowship wonderfully in heaven, but they never saw each other again down here. So anyway, he was at perfect peace with the fact that two of his disciples left him to go follow Jesus because that's the way he wanted it. And you and I, you know, we should have a real problem with any ministry which is centered around an individual instead of centered on Christ. And do we see this happening within the church today? Unfortunately, yes. I guess as creatures, we tend to do that. We tend to elevate people. They even had this problem back in the first century, didn't they? And Paul had to write the letter of 1 Corinthians to to try to correct this problem where people were saying, well, I am of Apollos. Oh, he's quite an orator, and I really like him. So I, or I was baptized by Peter, so I'm of Cephas. Or I'm of, uh, who was the other one they said? Uh, Paul. <laughs> I'm of Paul. And uh, we, we have that tendency today, you know, to put men, or, it, or even schools, you know, well, I went to this school, or I went to that school, and, and I'm of this guy, or I'm of that guy. That's, that's wrong. We are all, if you're in the body of Christ, the only one we are of and in is Jesus Christ. We are of Christ and him alone. So Christians, we need to remember that. Don't put people on pedestals. They are just the voices.
The Lord alone is the soul-saving, omnipotent word. He is the one we are only to look to. And he doesn't like to share his glory with another, does he? All right, now who were those two former disciples of the Baptist who became the first disciples of Christ? Well, John 1.40 makes it clear that one of them was Andrew. We're just told right out, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. Most Bible scholars agree that the second man was who? Right, John the Apostle, the one who wrote this gospel account that we're reading. And this assumption is made on the, uh, some information which is provided to us by the other three gospel accounts, the synoptic gospel writers, some information they give us, as well as this narrative that we're reading. The narrative itself bears the mark of, the, of one who was there, one who knew what was going on, and we'll mention some things as we get into the lesson. It would be really very characteristic of John not to include his name because he never includes his name in the whole rest of the gospel. He never mentions himself by name at all. Uh, nor does he mention himself in any one of his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. The only time John ever, ever mentions his name is in Revelation 1.9. You know John also wrote the book of Revelation. In John 1.9, he does mention his name, but he does it in such a way as to express total amazement that he, John, that I, John, have, have received the unique privilege to see all these events which will be occurring in the future. So there he, does, he just does it because he's so shocked that it would be him, me, John, who gets this unique privilege. Otherwise, how did John t generally refer to himself? The disciple who Jesus, whom Jesus loved. And that wasn't an egotistical thing where he was saying, you know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. It was that he just could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him, that Jesus loved him enough to go to that cross and die for him. So the first men to become Christ's disciples, Andrew and John, followed behind him as as he walked. After John the Baptist pointed him out, they left John and they started following behind Jesus. Now they were probably, if you put yourself in their sandals, would you not also be a little bit intimidated to just go and tap him on the shoulder and approach him directly and boldly after you just found out that he's the Messiah? He's the one that people have been waiting for and waiting for for thousands of years and there he goes, there he is. So they, they were too intimidated, and so they just walked behind him. However, knowing that he was being followed, how do you think he knew that? Does he have eyes in the back of his head? Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's one case where he, he does. Uh, he knew he was being followed, so the Lord turned to face them, and he spoke to them. And in doing so, he was opening the door for their salvation. His action very beautifully illustrates the divine initiative of salvation. Who starts the salvation process? God. It always starts with him. You know, a person could follow, you know, when Jesus was here on earth, a person could follow Jesus all over the place. He could have followed Jesus his whole life. But if Jesus had never turned around to, to face that one and to call that one to himself that individual would never experience salvation. God always takes the initiative. Jesus had to turn around and give the invitation to these two fellows. Now, that's from the divine perspective. From the human side of salvation, the reason Jesus did turn around to face Andrew and John was because he could see, he could see their hearts. 
He knew that they were coming to him openly and honestly. He, he, um, he knew these were, these were men. You think about this. Did it ever occur to you that Andrew and James and John and Peter had all been disciples of John the Baptist before they became disciples of Jesus? What does that tell you about them? They were seeking already, weren't they? They were, they recognized that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. They had obviously, since they were his disciples, they had already confessed their sins. They were looking forward to the one he was proclaiming. You know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand meant that the the Messiah is on his way. So these were men who were part of the godly remnant of Israel. It says in Jeremiah uh, 29, 13, And ye shall seek me and find me when, what? When ye shall search for me with all your heart. When a person is earnestly seeking to know who God is, you know, living up to that light that God has put in all men, the, the knowledge of himself he has put into all of us at birth. You know, eternity is written in our hearts. We know innately that there is a God. When, we, when a man or woman lives up to that knowledge, God will reveal himself to that person because that person would not be searching unless the Holy Spirit was already drawing that person to himself. This initiative for salvation always is with God. Now, I just read you a verse that you might think, hmm, how does that work hand in hand with Romans 3.11? Because Romans 3.11 tells us that there is no one who seeketh after God, right? So how can it say in Jeremiah 29.13, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, if there's no one who seeks after God. Well, that's because the one who is seeking with all their heart is only seeking. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit is already at work drawing that one to God. So no matter how you look at it, again, it always the salvation process always begins with God. He is always, always the initiator. Andrew and John, as I said, had been under the preaching ministry of the Baptists, so they'd already been convicted of their sin. They'd already repented of their sin. They'd already been drawn by the love of God to await the coming Savior. And they had even been willing to become, you know, just to uh, put away temporarily their, their fishing business. Uh, they were in the fishing business. We'll discuss that. And um, take time off to become John the Baptist's disciples, which meant that they, they put themselves at his feet and they were learning from him. And they were also involved in, in, uh, with him in his ministry of baptizing people. I'm sure he need, needed helpers with all the people that came out to be baptized. So Jesus didn't just leave them at a distance following him. Uh, he turned and he met them. And he met them openly. He opened the door for them to meet him. And he asked them a very profound question. That question was, what seek ye? You know, we are to examine our own selves, our own hearts, our own motives, our own purposes, and our own attitudes. And this is a really good question to ask ourselves with an open-faced heart, open heart. What seek ye? What are we really seeking? Now, he didn't ask this question because he needed to know the answer, did he? Whenever the Lord asks questions, he isn't asking because he needs to know the answer. He already knows the answer. He's all, he always asks questions so that those he's asking will recognize and know what their true purpose uh, was following him. 
they were the ones who would benefit from answering the question. Now, there are and there always have been many different motives and reasons for why people are professed followers of Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of wrong reasons for why people are professed followers of Christ. Those with wrong reasons for doing so will eventually stop following him. Have you ever wondered why some people seem like they're followers of Christ, that seem like maybe they've really gotten saved and they, they sprout up real fast and they get involved and then you look two months later and they're just nowhere to be found? Well, John tells us in one of his epistles, they went out from us because they were not of us. You know, the Lord had this same problem. He, at one point, had a very large group of followers. And, uh, and however, when it came to John chapter 6, the Bread of Life sermon, and he began talking to them about his own upcoming death, and he made it very clear to them that he had not come to lead a revolution against Rome. A very, very sad verse tells us that they, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Who knows what that verse is? It's easy to remember because it's got the, the address is 666. I always can remember it because of that. John... 666. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Some people believed because they had wrong motives. They thought he was coming to start a revolution against their oppressors. Others believed when they saw the miracles, believed with quotations around it, okay? When they saw his miracles, um, because they're mo- but, but they believed up here. And, the, and they followed him because they wanted to see more miracles. I mean, it was, a, it was a good show. It was very entertaining. Let's speculate on who he might heal next or what he might do next. So they were following him for the wrong reason. They weren't seeking to know him deeply and spiritually for who he is, nor were they seeking to submit to him as the Lord over their lives or commit themselves wholeheartedly to his service, you know, take up their own cross and follow him. Uh, They were said to have believed, and you'll read that word. Even in John 2.23, it talks about those who believed, but the Lord didn't commit himself to them. Even the demons believe, right? And they even have the good sense to tremble. You see, there's a world of difference between believing and receiving. That's why we say the 18 inches between heaven and hell. A lot of people believe up here, but until you receive. And Christ does give invitations. Here's one, come and see. There's another one where he says, I'm standing at the door knocking. You know, open the door, let me in. There's nothing wrong with having an invitation, giving people an invitation in church. That's what Jesus did. Fortunately, there are people who follow Jesus because they understand their own deep need for him. They're, you know, that they're hopeless and helpless apart from him, and they truly want to be delivered from the guilt of their sin. So the Lord's question to Andrew and John is really an excellent heart-searching question that each one of us should ask ourselves to examine our own spiritual condition. You know, every heart, every person is searching and seeking for something. You ever found anyone who isn't searching or seeking for something? Everybody's searching. If a heart is not seeking as its object an increased knowledge of and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, then, you know, you can count on the fact that it's going to be searching and seeking for something or someone else. Perhaps a heart might be set upon having a meaning relationship with someone. You know, someone of the opposite sex, or in this day and age, someone of the same sex, a meaningful relationship with 
with a spouse that you already have, meaningful relation, and there's nothing wrong with that, but if this is the main object or goal of your life, uh, having a meaningful relationship with parents or with children, perhaps um, the heart is set upon finding meaning and purpose and significance in life. This is what most people are looking for. What is my life all about? What is my purpose? What is my meaning? So they're seeking. Search. I can't get that right. <laughs> searching and seeking. Perhaps they're searching for a religion which they think will be a means toward their own self-improvement. You know, or a religion which will help them find their own inner self or whatever. You know. Um, perhaps they're seeking deliverance from suffering from some kind of an ongoing trial. A lot of people, their main focus is just to get out of suffering, the suffering that they feel over something that has happened in their lives or something that is ongoing in their lives. Perhaps um, they desire approval and the love of others. That's what motivates a lot of people. They just want to be loved. They just want to be have approval, perhaps of a father, perhaps of a mother. Um, perhaps people or you are driven by seeing the success of your own children. Uh, or maybe your primary heart's desire is personal appearance. Maybe that's your big focus, always to look the best that you can or have a perfect home. That drives a lot of women crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> Forget it. With a second law of thermodynamics, there is no hope. <laughs> or here's one that gets women, all of us, security just to have security. They say that's the number one thing women desire is security. Well, whatever that something else might be, if it is, it, it is not the heart motive for which Jesus Christ is, is looking. He wants a heart. I mean, none of these things are in and of themselves bad if the, the number one heart motive, the number one focus is set upon knowing him and continuing to know him in an ever deeper and more meaningful way. You know, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. The first two disciples answered the Lord's question with a question. Now, remember how many times I've told you that Jewish people love to do this. They love to answer questions with questions. So they answered his question, what seek ye, with the question of their own. They said, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? What they wanted to know here was where are you going to dwell where are you going to put your head down tonight this was their way really they answered they were answering his question with their question because this was their way of saying that they wanted to be with him they desired to be with him to have fellowship with him to commune with him wherever he was going they wanted to go with him they wanted to be in his place of quiet and pour their hearts out to him and have him be their teacher that's why they called him rabbi which is interpreted as master, they, they were asking him, telling him that they wanted to sit as his, at his feet and um, learn from him. They wanted to be his disciples, which means learner. They wanted to be learners. Now, if you remember the circumstances surrounding this event, then you will be more impressed by what the Lord's response to Andrew and John's question regarding his place of rest was. What were the circumstances? Where had Jesus just come from? Forty days and forty nights of fasting in the wilderness, which was a very rugged wilderness. I mean, it was very, it was, um, had a lot of hills and it, there was nothing there except wild beasts. And it, it was not, the, it was the most uncomfortable place in all of Israel to go. And he had been relentlessly tempted by Satan. 
40 days and 40 nights. So can you imagine if you had been out doing something really strenuous for 40 days and 40 nights, maybe out hiking in the mountains of North Carolina or something, um, and you hadn't eaten in all that time. And then you get back, finally, you get back to where you're going to camp out for the night. I can't even say your, your house because he didn't go back to his home. You go to, back to your campsite, and you are so tired, and you are so exhausted, and all you want to do is take a shower and lay down and go to sleep for maybe a week. But the phone rings, and somebody says, I want to come and stay with you and learn from you and have you teach me for a while. What would you say? I'd say, forget Very politely, you'd say, forget it. Let me sleep for a while. Just give me a little bit of time. You know, he could have, Jesus could have very simply told these two guys, look, I'm really, really tired. Could you just let me rest tonight and come back tomorrow? But did he even do that? I mean, that would have been understandable. We would forgive him for that. But that's not the way that the Lord handles those who honestly long to know him and fellowship with him. He immediately invited them to abide with him when he said, come and see. The Lord never puts off anybody, does he? The seeking heart, the one, the one who is already being drawn by the Holy Spirit to him, when they come to him, he doesn't put them off because today is the day of salvation. He's never too busy for the searching soul. We never have to worry that he won't have time for us. His phone line is never, ever busy. You never get a busy signal. Well, John 1.39 goes on to say that the two men, Andrew and John, came and saw where the Lord dwelt. And that, of course, implies that they didn't just look at it with their physical eyes and say, oh, there it is. That's where you're going to put your head on that pillow. They saw with spiritual eyes who Jesus is. And it's very interesting to notice at the end of verse 39 that the Lord tells, I mean, John tells us that it was about what time? It was the 10th hour, about the 10th hour. And John, in his gospel, always used Roman time. There was a difference between Hebrew time and Roman time. If he had used Hebrew time, this would be about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it wouldn't be that big a deal that they spent the whole day with him because it was already close to when the sun would go down. But he used Roman time, always. John used Roman time, and so it was 10 in the morning. Roman time is the same as our time. So this was 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, why do you think John included that little tidbit of information? Does that make your day, (laughs) knowing what time of day it was there when he first met Jesus? The reason I believe that John told us about the time of day is because this was important to him. I do believe that this indicates John was the other disciple with Andrew. This was the day of John's spiritual birth. It was his spiritual birthday. And he remembered what time it was when he first met Jesus, when Jesus turned and talked to him and said, come and see, and invited him to himself. You know, some of us don't remember, some of us do. I remember what time of day it was when I accepted Jesus Christ into my, Lord, into my heart as my Lord and Savior. I don't remember the day. But I do remember the time of day. So John, this is another indication of the fact that John did was the other disciple. Now, he went on to record that Andrew and he abode with Christ that day. So from 10 in the morning until the close of day, Andrew and John sat with Jesus at the place where he dwelt. 
Can you just imagine what a wonderful privilege that would be just to spend a whole day sitting with Jesus and learning from him? We're not told what they talked about, but it could be that the Lord taught them the truth about his person using the Old Testament scriptures as his validation. Because we say this because of the fact that both Andrew and John, after their long talk with the Lord, spending their day with him, they each sought out their own brothers, their blood brothers. We'll see this next. And when they sought their brothers, they said, we have found the Messiah. So obviously he had been talking to them and proved to them who he was. We see this in Philip's words also. Now, Philip knew Andrew and John and Peter and James. Philip knew all of them. They were all from the same city of Bethsaida. And uh, look what Philip says in verse 45. When he goes and finds Nathanael, he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. So apparently Jesus had been, this was probably an Emmaus Road kind of teaching. Wouldn't you have loved to have been with whoever those two disciples were after the Lord's resurrection when they were on their way out of Jerusalem, headed toward Emmaus, and Jesus came up. They didn't know who he was, and, and they, their hearts were just broken because they had thought Jesus was the Messiah, and now they turned their backs on Jerusalem, and they said he wasn't the Messiah, he was crucified. And not knowing who Jesus was, he started to teach them from the scriptures, from Moses, the law. Does the law speak about Jesus? Yes, every page of scripture speaks about Jesus. And he taught them how Moses and the law told about him and how all the prophets told about him. And I always say if there's one place I could have been, I would have loved to have been on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and have heard the Lord teach about himself using the Old Testament scriptures. I might have also liked to have been with John and Andrew on this day when I also believe Jesus told them about himself using the Old Testament scriptures. All those types that I'm probably missing, Jesus would have pointed out to them. Now, Andrew, let's look a minute at Andrew. Andrew always took, could you imagine being Andrew? How many of you have an older brother or sister sister who always kind of took the limelight from you. Don't raise your hand, but <laughs> uh, it's not a very envious position. You know, he always had to take a back seat to his brother Peter because whenever the two of them walked in the room, who did people gravitate to? Peter. Peter was just a natural-born leader. Um, Andrew is only mentioned three times in the gospel accounts other than the time where all the apostles are just listed for us. But even though very little is known about him, Yet, to his credit, every time that he is mentioned, those three times, what do we find him doing? He's always bringing people to Jesus. And that, I can't think of a higher commendation for anybody. That says it all. He um, was a true evangelist. Andrew represents those believers who, although they themselves might not talk a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that, we're to be voices, but some of us are a little more quiet, voices than others. They, they, some people just don't talk a lot, um, and there are very few recorded words that come out of Andrew's mouth, yet they are instrumental in bringing people to Christ. Andrew represents the Christian who goes out of her way or his way to bring people to a place where they can meet Christ, whether that be a church 
or a vacation Bible school. You know, maybe you go pick up little children and take them to vacation Bible school. Maybe you bring them to Sunday school. Uh, maybe you bring people, I hope, to Bible study. We even have an Andrew Award for those of you that do. We need to be updating that, Terry. Um, they're, they're, he symbolizes people, uh, who, the redeemed people, who go out of their way to give people tracts or Bibles and... Um, you know, he's a, he's a saint. He's typical of the saint who is always looking for someone that he or she can introduce to Jesus Christ. And who did Andrew first bring to Jesus Christ? He brought his own brother, Simon. I mean, here might have been an opportunity to, for Andrew, you know, the first disciple. Maybe once I can be the leader. <laughs> but he didn't, have, didn't seem to have a problem with going to get his older brother, even knowing that when he did so, Peter would probably become the leader of the group. And sure enough, he did. But he didn't have any. He was kind of like John the Baptist. He didn't have any big, a begrudging spirit about that. So he brought his own blood brother, Simon, who is more commonly known as Peter. Remember, Peter was the one who on the day of Pentecost saw 3,000 people saved. So who shared in that fruit? Andrew. Andrew brought Peter to the Lord. So that those 3,000 people, that was shared fruit. You know, Andrew, and that never would have happened if Andrew hadn't brought his brother to Jesus. Now, because Andrew cared enough to introduce his brother, we also are privileged to read in our Bibles the Gospel of Mark. Remember how we talked about the fact that Mark's gospel is really the account of Peter's testimony of the life of Christ. Neither, if Andrew hadn't gotten Peter, would we have the epistles of First and Second Peter. So even though Andrew never wrote a book, he shares in the fruit of the books that his brother was responsible for. Now, the second time that we read of Andrew, we find him, uh, I don't know where that picture went to. Oh, yeah, that's the one. That's it. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> we find him bringing a young lad to Jesus. And because of that, the result was that 5,000 men, plus their wives and all their children, were miraculously fed with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And when Andrew is met, uh, introduced to us the third time, he's bringing some Gentiles to Jesus Christ, some Greeks. Actually, it's interesting when you read that account because the, the Greeks went to Philip, and Philip took them to Andrew. You see, even the disciples knew who was the best one to take people to Jesus. And I think it speaks very highly of Andrew that he wasn't prejudiced about bringing Greeks, thank goodness, <laughs> to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he obviously was a very compassionate, people-oriented person. You know, he might not have had a real charismatic kind of personality so that he wasn't a leader, but he had a magnetic personality. People drew to him, and he drew to people. He was a people person. He would have made a good preacher because preachers should be people persons. <laughs> they should love their sheep, right? Well, Andrew was really what all believers should be, right? He was, we should all be people persons. That sounds funny, but we, we should all be soul winners. As far as we know, as I said, he didn't have any great leadership abilities. He uh, didn't have an eloquent vocabulary. But are those things important to the Lord? No, of course not. He looks at the heart. And what, when we look at these disciples, we're going to learn that Jesus uses all kinds of people. Isn't that, aren't you glad to know that? 
You can be quiet and shy, or you can be loud and outgoing, or you can be hot-tempered like we're going to see, and and the Lord will work on all of us and and can use all of us in spite of ourselves. Um, So... He didn't, have a great, he didn't have a great vocabulary, never wrote a book that was placed in the eternal word of God, but you know what he did had, have? He had a great message. He had a great message. And, you know, you don't have to have an eloquent vocabulary for this message. Here's what his message was. We have found the Messiah. You know what your message can be to others? I have found the Messiah, the Savior. He also had a great method. Here's his method. Again, very simple. He led people to a place where they themselves could personally encounter the Savior. You could lead people to this book because this is where people can personally encounter the Savior. And because of this, we know that God was very pleased with Andrew and his ministry. Now, as I already surmised, John is probably the unnamed disciple of John 135, who, along with Andrew, was one of the first two disciples to come to Jesus. Now, John, we know, was also the last disciple to be left on earth. So he's one of the first with Andrew, and he's the last. So he had the longest of all, the longest apostolic ministry of all the Lord's apostles. He was the, the disciple who leaned his head on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper. He was the disciple, the only disciple, who stood where? At the foot of the cross as Christ was dying. And he was the one to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his own mother, Mary. So what kind of man was John, would you say? Compassionate, caring. I mean, why did Jesus entrust the care of his mother to John instead of to one of his brothers? Doesn't that make you wonder? I mean, that's the kind of guy John was. He knew John had a heart, as, as just a huge heart, that he would just take Mary in and treat her as he would his own mother. Um, he, was also, he was also the first disciple, I didn't mention this, to, to see the empty tomb. The only reason for that is because he was younger than Peter, and he outran. Peter would have been the first, but he was older, and he didn't get there first. John got there first, and when John ran in and saw the empty tomb and the way the clothes were laying, he immediately believed, didn't he? He believed in the resurrection. Peter didn't. Um, He was also the only one of the apostles who was not martyred for his faith, other than Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas was not martyred. Um, he, He took his own life. John was the only one, but he certainly was persecuted for his faith. Uh, He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. But what we could say about John is that he was affectionate. He was devoted. He, uh, Jesus did, he was in the inner circle. Who were the three disciples of the inner circle of Jesus Christ? Peter, James, and John. Now remember, John at this point was, had to have been a teenager. He was a young, he was young. He was a young boy, and we find that he was uh, affectionate. And there does seem to be a sense in which Jesus loved him in a special way. He loved all of his disciples in a special way. We could say that. But he loved John in a special way, definitely. But we looked at the good side of John. And we could look at the good side of each and every one of us, but we all know that there's also that bad side of us, right? Because we still live in human flesh and blood bodies. And there, John did have another side to his character. He and his brother James were called 
what? The sons of thunder. Now that says a lot right there. And Jesus is the one who called them that. They were the disciples. And this just gives you a whole different perspective of John. You see, John, naughty, naughty. (laughs) With James, his brother, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume all the citizens. Think of that. Men, women, and children, just to fry them up like bacon, (laughs) the citizens of a certain Samaritan village, because they would not receive Jesus into their village. That's in Luke chapter 9. That's John. And on another occasion, James and John coaxed their mother, Salome, into asking Jesus for the prominent seats in the kingdom. You know, they wanted to sit on the right and the left hand. Now, what does that speak of? A little bit of pride problem there? So we see the two sides of John's uh, character, and that's the same it is with us. We all need some character refining, don't we? And who's the one to do that? Jesus Christ. Of course, by the time Jesus was finished molding and shaping not only John, but his brother James and Peter and Andrew, all of them, they were vessels fit for the master's use. And so we all say, you know, that little saying, be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. Let's look. Wow, we're going to run out of time here. Let's look at Peter and James next. For this, let's look at verses 41 and 42. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, which is not Jonah, by the way, it's John, the son of John. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. All right, stop there. After spending a day with Jesus, Andrew went quickly to fetch the person who was probably the closest to him in all the world, and that was his brother Simon, who was also his partner in the fishing business. What this tells us, because he ran to get him. Now remember, where are they at this point in time? They're down in Judea, at the southern end of the uh, Jordan River, in a place called Bethabara. They're not up in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. So when Andrew runs to get Peter, he doesn't run all the way up to Galilee and bring him all the way back down to... I mean, there's not, there wasn't enough time for that. We'll see after this that they do all leave and go to Galilee. So it tells us that Peter was somewhere close by. And so was James, because John goes and gets James. So it tells us that Andrew and Peter and James and John were all right there around John, around John the Baptist. Probably all were his disciples before they became the Lord's disciples. All right? So um, upon finding Simon, Peter proclaimed, We have found the Messiah. We already talked about his message, but did you know that Andrew is the first one to ever call Jesus Christ the Messiah? He is. Another commendation for Andrew. Now, according to the example of Andrew and John, we find a little biblical principle here. Um, Who did they go seek first? After they came to know who Jesus was, who were the first ones they went to? Their brothers, their own blood brothers. And so perhaps, and you know, Jesus spent 30 years with his own family. And even next week when we look at his first miracle, his first miracle was performed with all of his family right there. So I think the biblical principle here is to tell us that we are responsible before God to present, first of all, a clear 
and consistent gospel witness by not only our words, but by our lifestyle, to who first? To our own family. We are responsible to our husbands, to our children. If you were the first one saved in your own family like me, I was responsible to my mother and father and my brother and sister first. Present to them first before you go out and save the rest of the world. This has been a problem with many men of God, unfortunately. They won the world, but their own families remained lost. So that's the biblical principle, to our families first. And who is the hardest to reach? (laughs) The family, even with Jesus. So be encouraged. It was even the most difficult with him. He had to resurrect from the dead to win them. All right. John 142 says, Jesus beheld him. And you know that's the same word that uh, was used when it said John the Baptist looked upon Jesus. So what was Jesus doing with Peter? He was gazing intently at him. He was looking into Peter's innermost being. And he saw there this rough, burly fisherman, Simon, uh, a very impetuous, fiery type of a guy. Um, You know, self-centered, a guy who had foot and mouth disease, who often spoke before he thought. Uh, This is what Jesus saw. Of course, Jesus saw all this before even the foundation of the earth was laid. But he also saw that he was a natural leader, and he saw what he sees when he looks at you and me. He sees the finished product. And so he said, you are Simon, and all the, the carnal stuff that went with that, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. And what are we told Cephas means? A stone. All right, now Cephas is an Aramaic word. The counterpart in Greek is Petros. And both Petros and uh, Cephas mean stone. So what he was saying here is that he was going to take this rash and rugged fisherman and mold him into a man with a rock-like character. And that's exactly what he did do with Peter, did he not? Now, although the fourth disciple to follow Christ is not named, he is implied by one simple word in verse 41, and that is the word first, where it says, he, Andrew, first findeth his own brother, Simon. The implication here is that, secondly, who found his brother? John. Secondly, John went out and found his brother. Now, it's not surprising that John didn't name his brother because John didn't even name himself. That was typical of John. But we know who his brother was. His brother was James. Now, don't get this James, the brother of John, the sons of Thunder or the sons of Zebedee, Don't get him confused with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James in the Bible. This isn't the James who wrote the book. This is, um, actually, did you know that John and James, being the sons of Zebedee and Salome, I always think of Baloney or Salami, (laughs) but their mother was Salome, and she was the sister of who? Mary. So John and James were cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. So they were blood cousins. Well, sort of. (laughs) But uh, And and they were fishing partners with Peter and Andrew. So we had a little click going here, don't we? I mean, they all knew each other. And they knew Philip. All those guys knew Philip because they were all from the same city of Bethsaida. Nathaniel's kind of the only outsider. He's from Cana, which isn't too far away. But anyway, we'll talk about Nathaniel next. But they're, um, it's interesting, you know, when you go out and witness to somebody, and lead somebody to the Lord, of course, that's all, all the glory goes to the Lord. You're just an instrument. 
But you never know what God is going to do with that one that you lead to the Lord. Some little, little kid maybe in vacation Bible school or over at Awanas or, or whatever, you know, or an adult that maybe you'll never see again. But you don't know what the Lord is going to do with that person. You have no idea. Some, some of us won't know until we get to eternity. But do you know what the Lord did with Andrew's first convert? He became the first preacher of the church. And what did the Lord do with uh, John's first convert? James. He became the first apostolic martyr of the church. This guy, James, was so on fire for the Lord that the, the Jewish religious leaders... In persecuting the church, they said, we gotta go, we got to go for the head. We, I mean, not, the head is Christ. When they couldn't get him because he was resurrected, but they, they had to go for the head of the church and stop this thing, cut this thing down before it gets any further. And so the first one they got, the first one they martyred, wasn't Peter. It was James. He was really gung-ho for Jesus Christ. And so he, he really was a son of thunder, but they turned the thunder around for the good <laughs> instead of the bad. You know, that's a good thing that Jesus can do. He can take, like, I'm stubborn, but he can take that stubbornness, hard-headedness, and, you know, turn it away from the bad and turn it for good. Thank goodness. All right, let's look at Philip, verses 43 and 44. The day following Jesus would the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, all right? See, now he and the four disciples leave Judea, and they go up north to Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. All right, going to stop there before we get to Nathaniel. Now the fifth disciple is Philip. He was also, as, as it says, from the city of Andrew and Peter, the city of Bethsaida. So they all obviously knew each other. However, it was not Andrew, Peter, James, or John who brought Philip to the Lord. Who brought Philip to the Lord? Who went after Philip? The Lord himself. Actually, he traveled a long way to find Philip. He went all the way from Bethabara up to Galilee. And that's a beautiful illustration of the fact that Christ will go any distance to reach people. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Where did he come from to do that? All the way from heaven. Now, the account of the gathering of the Lord's first six disciples actually gives us some very profound insight into the various ways that people come to Christ. Not all of us in this room have come to Christ in the same way. You know, God confines us to one Messiah, but he doesn't confine himself to one method of bringing people to that Messiah. How was it that the first disciples came to the Lord? How was it? Through the preaching of John the Baptist. That's how Andrew and John came to the Lord. How many of you, will you raise your hand, were brought to the Lord through either the preaching of a preacher, an evangelist, uh, a teacher, or a missionary, or like a Sunday school teacher? Okay, this is good. This is good. This is usually the way it is. It's usually most people, or revival. Well, that would be a preacher or an evangelist. Um, Others, like James and Andrew, have come to the Lord through the per personal witness of a family member. Now, let me ask that question. How many of you have come to the Lord through a family member, the witness of a family member? See, it's, far, it's always far less. About, I saw about five hands there, six hands, seven hands, seven. That's a good number. We'll stop there. <laughs> All right. And then others, like Philip, have been brought to the Lord di directly. Now, I have to qualify that by saying, you know, if I say without a human instrument, that's not 
always, that's not ever true because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so everyone who comes to Jesus Christ has to have the word. You know, faith comes by hearing the word. The word tells us about Christ. And who did the Holy Spirit use as human instruments to write the word? Humans. That was a dumb question. <laughs> Very good, he used humans. <laughs> so indirectly, we all come to the Lord through human instruments. But, but um, directly means like you had the word of God alone. There was no person there who brought you the word or, you know, whatever. Just the word spoke to you. Or perhaps a, a tract that had maybe the, um, the Romans road in it or something. How many of you were led to the Lord? Or maybe a book that you read that was all about Jesus and gave a lot of scripture in it. How many of you were led to the Lord that way? One, two, three. See, it's all, this is so typical. It was the same way yesterday when I asked the ladies. My husband was saved that way through the reading of a book. However, I gave him the book, so maybe I got a little crap. <laughs> but the statistic in that is always, is, is always pretty, pretty low compared to the preachers and the evangelists. All right, others, as we will find in the case with the sixth disciple, Nathaniel, who is elsewhere known as Bartholomew. Bartholomew and Nathaniel are one and the same, okay? Some are brought to Christ through the loving witness of friends. So let's look real quickly at how Nathaniel was brought to the Lord. And for this, we'll look at verses 45 to 49. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Where did Philip, where have we heard those words before? Come and see. Jesus spoke them. Isn't that commendable of Philip? Boy, he was a true follower of Jesus. He used the same phrase, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Behold that before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Wow, what a switch. Jesus says two short sentences, and Nathaniel knows exactly who he is. Well, Philip, having met the Lord, didn't remain silent or indifferent very long, did he? And we shouldn't either. Once we've met the Lord, we should be gung-ho to go out and seek people to bring to Christ. Notice uh, he used, or I shouldn't say that. He was a fisher. He, Jesus had said to him, be, uh, follow me, and that's exactly what Philip did. He followed the Lord because the Lord had gone out seeking him, and now he went out and sought Nathaniel. So he became, like the Lord, he became a fisher of men. And the fish he was going for was his friend Nathaniel, and the bait he used was, he said, we. Now, he was speaking of not only himself, but Andrew and James and John and Peter because he knew them. And so he said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Obviously, he and Nathaniel were both serious students of God's word. They had probably pored over God's word and spent many hours together studying the law and the prophets and, and studying um, about the coming Messiah. And so Philip was as we should be. You know, when you go out witnessing to somebody, he was full of joy 
because Jesus had met the needs of his heart. However, this information that he shared with his friend, although very excitedly spoken, was, uh, did not enthuse his friend at all. Have you ever had a wet blanket thrown over you like that? You know, you're all full of excitement. You say, I found Jesus. Oh, I'm, I'm born again. And then somebody just squelches it. I, I had that with my parents. When I first got saved, I was 22 and a half years old, and I ran home and I said, I found Jesus. Jesus found me. <laughs> I know Jesus. I've been born again. They looked at me like I was crazy, and they said to each other, this will pass. You know, it was another thing I was going through. But boy, talk about a wet blanket. Mm. But Philip didn't let that happen to him. Now, but why wasn't Nathaniel excited? Well, Nathaniel, along with many other Jews, had a little prejudice problem. He had a little problem about the citizens of Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth was kind of like uh, Fayetteville. It was a military town, and the people of Nazareth were known to compromise and cater to and profit from the Roman garrison and the soldiers that were situated right nearby. Furthermore, Nathaniel probably knew enough about the scripture to know that the Messiah wouldn't come out of Nazareth. Well, at least he had missed that little bit about a branch coming from Branchtown, like we looked at. And so he just picked up on the fact that the Messiah was to come from the city of David, Bethlehem. So what are you talking about? You know, you found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says something that he's always known for. (laughs) Nathaniel's always known for that little question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, absolutely. The best thing of all came out of Nazareth. All right, now as we consider Philip's, we haven't talked about Philip, but let's look at Philip in this, in this light. When we consider how Philip responded to his friend's um, sarcastic prejudice response here, we can learn a lot about witnessing ourselves. And you know that if you've been witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ for any length of time, you know that people will come up with all kinds of objections for not believing in Christ, not accepting him. I mean, they have all kinds of little stumbling blocks when it comes to the gospel message. So Philip teaches us how to really graciously handle some of those situations. He didn't get angry with his friend. He didn't try to argue with him. Remember that, the two A's. Don't get angry and don't try to argue. His simple reply to Nathaniel was a direct invitation to come and see for himself who Jesus of Nazareth was. It's always a good thing just to challenge people. Well, why don't you just come and see, taste and see for yourself, investigate the facts for yourself. In effect, that's what he was saying. He was saying, come and investigate the facts for yourself and see for yourself if he is not truly the Messiah. Philip was not turned aside, you see. He wasn't distracted by Nathaniel's stumbling block, which was his objection to Nazareth. He refused, Philip refused to be distracted into discussing some tangent subject. And this is what Satan will do using somebody. You know, I remember one time, this is a true story, it was two two o'clock in the morning and the phone rang and my husband doesn't do phones in the middle of the night. So I answered the phone and I said, hello? I I, I was scared. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what is this? Two in the morning, it's got to be an emergency. And the guy on the other end didn't even say hello or anything. The first thing he said was, who did Cain marry? 
Now this was a fellow that we had been witnessing to. He actually, he's, a, he's born again. He finally got saved. He finally got rid of all of his stumbling blocks. He's a Jewish fellow over in Fayetteville. But I'll never forget. I thought, who cares at 2 o'clock in the morning who came here? <laughs> but people, you know, if they come up with like all these little things about, well, I guess, I could just, you're just going to have to explain to me how evolution can't, can, can be can't be true and how I can believe the Garden of Eden or how in the world can I swallow Jonah and the whale? <laughs> oh, that was a pun. Or how can I accept Noah and the ark? You know, and, and, then, and then you go out and you research and you, and you get all the answers and then you come back to them with a stack of books like this is what I used to do. You know, I'd research and I'd find out all the answers and I'd come back to them and say, well, if you just read these books, you'll see, you'll see it's all solved. And then they'd come up with another problem. And then I have to go back and research, and they'd never read those books. They didn't care less about it. They were just putting me off, putting me off. And uh, Philip didn't get distracted by all of that. He just challenged Philip. You know, if, if, I mean, Nathaniel, if Philip had gotten into this long dissertation with his friend about Nazareth and Bethlehem and et cetera, et cetera, then, then Nathaniel would have just come up with another problem, and then he would have answered that, and they would come up with another one. And Perhaps Nathaniel would never have gotten to Jesus at all. One answer would have led to another question, and then before you know it, they'd be in a full-blown-out debate and arguing with each other. Uh, and then by that time, Nathaniel might have, uh, Philip might have blown it by getting angry and said, well, if you're a Christian, I don't want to have anything to do with him. But the way to lead others by Christ, to Christ is not by argumentation. It's simply by confronting them with Christ himself. Philip was also wise in that he didn't allow Nathaniel's skepticism to rub off on himself. Now, that can be another danger. You know, if someone is really skeptical and brings up all these things, they can actually cause you to begin to uh, have doubts. But Philip's simple response was full of spiritual wisdom because he realized the key to accepting the Savior was in hearing the Savior's words. It's not ever in our words, is it? We can talk and talk and talk and talk. The power is not in our words, it's in the Savior's words. The Lord Jesus watched Nathanael approach. So Nathanael did this. He, he was challenged and he said, okay, I'll go with you. And so the two men, Philip and Nathanael, um, start heading out toward Jesus. But Jesus And Jesus sees him coming and here's what he says. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And the word guile there is the word deceit. It's actually the word Jacob. Basically what he's saying here is behold an Israelite in whom is no Jacob. Jacob's name had become almost synonymous with deceit and guile. Because you remember when we studied Jacob's life last life last year? The whole first part of his life he was just constantly deceiving. So his name became synonymous with the word deceit. Um, until, of course, he had that experience where he wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. And God changed his name to what? To Israel. So see what Jesus is saying? Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no Jacob. So he's using both of Jacob's names there. And we'll talk about why. All right. So Jesus is showing here that he knew Nathaniel's person. He knew that here was a man in whom was no deceit. He was an openly honest, sincere man. He didn't mislead people or hide what he really thought, did he? I mean, when Philip came to him, he didn't hide anything. He said, 
Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He wasn't even trying to hide his prejudice about Nazarene, people from Nazareth. Well, Nathaniel's reaction to this comment about himself was one of genuine surprise. He, he said, how do you know me? Whence knowest thou me? He knew that what the Lord had just said about his character was absolutely true. And he didn't, know, he didn't say that in a conceited way. Yeah, that's me. I don't have any deceit. He just knew his own character. Uh, he knew himself well enough to know that this statement about himself was true. Nathaniel also knew that Jesus had never met him before. So how in the world could this man from Nazareth know him? You know, only the Lord can search the heart. So at this point, Nathaniel might have begun to think, well, I know how this has happened. Philip has already told him about me. So you see what Jesus did in order to remove that possibility from Nathaniel's thinking he immediately went a step further and he told Nathaniel that he not only knew his character, but he also knew where Nathaniel had been prior to when Philip had first come to him. He said that he saw him where? Under a fig tree. I saw you. And so, after only a few brief words from the Lord's lips, Nathaniel's mouth must have been hanging wide open, you know. Wow. How in the world could this man know not only my, my uh, deep inner character, but now how could, he, how could he have known where I was when he wasn't in anywhere near around me? He knew where I was before Philip even showed up. And it's very possible. Here's, here's what might have very well been going on. When Nathaniel was under that fig tree. Now, Jewish people used to go under fig trees for their time of meditation and quiet and studying the scripture. That was a common place for them to go. So when he was under the shade of a fig tree, very possibly what he had been meditating on or reading or talking to the Lord about was um, probably the Old Testament person of Jacob. And this may have been why the Lord spoke of the characteristic of deceit, why he said, here is an Israelite in whom is no Jacob and it may also account for why Jesus spoke in the last two verses verses 50 and 51 he's still speaking to Nathaniel and he talks to him about the dream that Jacob had you know the dream of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending so what he is in essence doing here is the Lord was demonstrating to Nathaniel both his omnipresence and his omniscience and, and, and Nathaniel understood this. You see, he understood that the Lord knew his character and even knew what he was thinking about, what he had been meditating about. And that's why he was able to just immediately respond by saying, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. What happened to the side issues? What happened to Nathaniel's stumbling block? Just, did he care anymore? that Jesus was from Nazareth? You know, maybe later on that day, Jesus sat down with Nathanael and said something like, you know, Nathanael, I really was born in the city of David. I was born in Bethlehem. But you see, there was this little problem with Herod the Great. So we, my dad, my stepdad took us over to Egypt for a few years. And when he came back, Herod's son was ruling. We knew that wasn't good. And then God spoke to him in a dream and we went up to Nazareth. But you know, there is a scripture verse even in the Old Testament that says the Messiah would be a branch from Branchtown, that he would be a Nazarene. And all of that was taken care of. You know, you'll find, if I had stumbling blocks before I came to the Lord. I had little questions. How could this be and how could that be? But... 
Faith begets faith. Unbelief begets unbelief. Once you come to the Lord, your eyes are open. And all your little problems, if you stay in the word and you grow and you grow, all your little problems will one by one be answered. So in one instant burst of revelation, Nathaniel had seen that this man standing before him was God manifest in the flesh. And it's significant to note real quickly that in John's gospel, remember John is the one who uh, paints the portrait of Jesus as the son of God, Jesus as God. In John's gospel, there are seven testimonies, seven people who bear witness to Christ's deity. And they are John the Baptist was the first one that we saw in verse 34. Now the second one is Nathaniel himself. And we will see as we go through John that Peter will also do the same thing. And the Lord himself testifies to his own deity in 1036. And then Martha testifies to his deity in 1127. And Thomas at the end, after he doubted, you know, and then the Lord shows him his hands and everything in the side, his side. He testifies to Christ's deity. And then the last one who does that is John himself, who is the author of, of the book of John. Let me look real quickly at those last two verses, 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So in response to Nathanael's affirmation of faith in who Christ is, Jesus now reveals that not only is he omniscient, all-knowing, that he knows everything, but he also says that he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent. Many believe, as I told you, that when Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree, he had been meditating upon the story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder and the dream you know, that he had about Jacob's ladder that the angels were ascending and descending on. The top reached to heaven and the bottom of the ladder was on the earth. So now with this story from Jacob's ladder, our Lord is basically saying to Nathanael, because I saw you in your private, quiet time alone under that fig tree, and I know your inner thoughts, because of that you believe that I am the Son of God. But listen, I am going to tell you something. You are going to see far greater things than this. You will truly, truly, he says, which means I really, really mean this, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, you will see my omnipotence. You will see my power when you see heaven open up and God's angels ascending and descending upon me, the Son of God. You see, Nathaniel, Jesus says, I am Jacob's ladder. I am that link between earth and heaven, between man and and God. I am, as you have said with your own mouth, the Son of God, and that speaks of my deity. And I'm also, as you have said, Nathaniel, the King of Israel. And what does that speak of? David's greater son, the King of Israel. That speaks of my humanity. I am the God-man, the link, the ladder between God and man. And I am the one and only mediator between God and man. I am the one way. There's only one ladder to heaven. I am the one way to heaven. 
and I am the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. You see, Jacob's ladder is a type. Remember, we talk about types, a T-Y-P-E of Jesus Christ. Because, then he says, this is the forecast, because I one day will ascend, you too, Nathaniel, and all the rest of you will also one day ascend. On me, I am the ladder. So we have the conclusion of the first two days of our Lord's public ministry. And in this brief time, we have seen that he has gotten his first six of the twelve disciples, which will follow him. And I trust that we have seen two main principles in this lesson. People were and still are attracted to Jesus Christ in different ways, through preachers, through family, directly, or through friends. And the second main principle, that Jesus attracts different types of people as well. And he can use all of us. He can use any type, any personality. We see that he used quiet workers like Andrew. He used impulsive leaders like Peter, impetuous. I still can't say it. Rash. <laughs> he used thundering zealots like James. We didn't talk much about James, but we will. He used pensive thinkers like Nathaniel, and he used passionate men like John was, and he used the outgoing type like Philip was. So thank you for your patience, and Lord, thank you for showing us this morning that you are not limited in the manners and the methods that you choose to reach men and women for your eternal kingdom. Thank you that you also are not limited by our own personalities, that you can use all types of people as your servants. And thank you, Lord, that you are not a respecter of persons and that all races and sexes and nationalities and personality types are equally invited to enter into eternal life. But, Lord, though you are not limited in these things, you have limited us to one ladder, one way to get to you. And that, of course, is through your son Jesus, who himself said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the ladder to heaven, which Jacob dreamed of so long ago. May we, Lord, who know your Son as our personal Lord and Savior, be even more burdened by today's lesson to be like Andrew and John and Philip, who were so excited about finding their Messiah that they ran to their relatives and their friends and challenge them to come and see for themselves what this Jesus of Nazareth is like and to hear his words firsthand. May we, Father, bring our unsaved family members and our friends, our acquaintances, this very same challenge. And may we do all in our human ability with your divine guidance and strength to bring them where they can hear about Jesus and meet him firsthand. We ask these things so that Christ may get all the glory. Amen.